Oh, I better not put that line in. You might be cutting me. And welcome back to Countries in Common. We are so excited to bring you yet another episode. And so far, we haven't gone viral and we haven't gotten famous. But alas, there's always more time for that. Ah, now, Meg. Sharon, isn't today famous for that patron saint of the Emerald Isle? A happy St. Patrick's Day. Fulcha is the Irish word for a warm welcome to all of you not fortunate enough to be of Irish descent. Sure, and to the Irish, there's just two kinds of people in the world. Those that are Irish and those that wish they were. Not bad. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Good Irish accent. You pulled that out of somewhere deep in your brain. Well, you know, I've been there a few times. Listen to my uncle, you know. Let's talk about these countries that may have some question marks, but each country has citizens that have accomplished historical moments, and these countries all have beauty within their borders. These countries claim to have never had COVID, North Korea and Turkmenistan. And these countries claim to have had zero cases for a long time now, Tanzania and Tajikistan. And these countries have peculiarly low numbers, a little questionable, China, Western Sahara and Yemen. And these countries went to the market and these countries stayed home. These countries that we are discussing today have some stuff in common already. Primarily, they actually fall, you know, uh, in the bottom ranks in terms of corruption, freedom of speech, and the press. Uh, And they also mostly have a dictator-style government. We're also going to touch on a disputed region and a region that is currently in a civil war. Uh, so it's really questionable, you know, that they have no COVID. And so that is the name of our episode. With these countries that have unresolved crises wherein COVID may have just been the icing on the cake. And it's very possible that we have, they've not been able to dive into the depths of COVID reporting, as well as other countries who may not, who may be choosing not to dive into the depths of COVID reporting or testing either. Well, let's try and keep the program as positive as we can and reflect on the people and cultures within these countries, even if their governments are in some form or another, not as we'd wish them to be for the prosperity and freedoms of their citizens. We are fortunate to live in a country we do. Anyway, let's do some thank yous and shout outs. I want to thank Heidi, Jen, Maureen, Catherine, Kara, and Chris for writing a review through the Apple format. I let it out to my workplace, Meg, lately that um, I'm doing this podcast. And so far, Andrea in particular and my broker, Alex, have heaped praise on the uh, podcast. (laughs) And Annie, Peru is coming, so stay tuned. Mm. And one of my clients in Australia, Dave, told me he listened as well. And Kaylee also said that we're sounding great and that we're um, bouncing off one another. So thank you to everybody. North Korea is the first country that we're going to talk about today, and they claim to have never had a single case of COVID-19. They swear that they have tested thousands and they have no confirmed cases. 
They have gone as far as to refuse food shipments from China, and their trade with China has dropped 73% last year. They have also used other questionable tactics to prevent COVID from entering their borders, uh, in addition to blocking food shipments from China, such as blocking fishing and salt production in the ocean, you know, in case the ocean spreads COVID. Their cities have had full lockdowns. They have also attempted to hack into six different companies that were working on various vaccines. And the pandemic has even further isolated the North Korean people and put health matters at risk. North Korea has the highest rate of tuberculosis outside of sub-Saharan Africa, and the country has actually been refusing new shipments of medical aid from China or India in fears of COVID. Meg, positive. I know the countries today can be a tad difficult, but we still need to acknowledge their wonderful peoples. That's right. We are supposed to be trying to pull the best out of these questionable numbers in terms of COVID, but it's not my fault that North Korea just happens to be the best at tuberculosis transmission. Well, you know what, Meg? North Korea is is the best at something else, too. Building stadiums. They have the largest stadium in the world, the Rangredo Stadium, or the May Day Stadium. 150,000 seats. And you know something incredible about Kim Jong-il? The first time he bowled, he scored a perfect game of 300. And the first time he golfed, he had 11 holes in one. (laughs) Meg, do you know that Cody and I personally witnessed a hole in one that resulted in a par score? Cody, Steve, and I were playing around the golf, and we had a long par three, about 160 yards. Steven took out a five iron and whacked the ball right over the green and into the forest behind. So he took out a second ball and took an easier swing. Well, the ball disappeared from our sight, and when we got up to the cup, there it was. Steven had a hole in one, but only scored three for the hole. <laughs> now, Kim Jong-un wasn't a slouch either. The present-day supreme leader learned to drive at age three. And you know what, Meg? I'm willing to wager that it was in an old Volvo 240. Because in the 1970s, the founder, Kim Il-sung, purchased a thousand new Volvo cars from Sweden. But upon delivery, forgot one important detail. That being to pay for the cars. (laughs) The Swedish government has sent them a copy of the bill every year since. But even after friendly reminders, the North Korean government has still managed to forget to pay for the cars. I guess they have more important things to spend money on. According to official North Korean media, military expenditures for 2010 amount to 15.8% of the state budget. However, the U.S. State Department has estimated that North Korea's military spending averaged about 23% of the GDP from 2004 to 2014, making it the highest level of military expenditure in the world. They actually have the highest number of military and paramilitary personnel as well, with about 9.5 million of its population of 25 million, representing 37% of their population. As for their active duty army, about 1.21 million, uh, number four, after China, U.S., and India, which is about 5% of their population, whereas for the rest of those countries, Their active military represents less than half a percent. 
But, you know, it is very important that North Korea has a large army uh, so that they can be stationed at the DMZ or the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, because uh, that is the world's most heavily fortified border. FYI, the world's longest border is also considered to be the longest undefended border, and it is between Canada and the U.S. There is some conflicting information uh, about what else North Korea spends its money on. Many services for their citizens are subsidized, like education, housing, and food production. In terms of healthcare, there are actually some conflicting reports between Amnesty International and the WHO, uh, where the Amnesty report claimed that North Korea had an inadequate healthcare system, but on the contrary, the director of the WHO claimed that North Korea's healthcare system was considered the envy of the developing world and had no lack of doctors and nurses. Indeed, the country claims to have the highest number of doctors per capita amongst low-income countries with 3.7 physicians for every 1,000 people. Also, according to the World Health Organization, expenditure on health per capita is one of the lowest in the world, although preventative medicine is emphasized in North Korea through physical exercise and sports, as well as nationwide monthly checkups and routine spraying of all public places against disease. So last thing about their healthcare system, every individual in the country has a lifetime health card, which contains a full medical record. There are other things that every individual in North Korea has, such as each citizen in North Korea is given a radio that cannot be turned off. <laughs> Only the volume can be adjusted. I feel like people often consider you and I to be like radios that they cannot turn off. And, you know, unluckily for them, they can't even turn down the volume on you and I. Family, Meg, what can you do with them? <laughs> Where was I? Oh, Yeah. There are only three TV networks in North Korea, and two are only available on the weekends. All songs played have to be selected by the government. Maybe Kim himself does the Gangnam style, but Psy is likely not played over the top ten on their radios. (laughs) There's an interesting story to tell in terms of other media in North Korea. The abduction of Shin Sang-ok and Choi Eun-hee. Shin Sang-ok was a famous South Korean film director married to actress Choi Eun-hee. Together, they established Shin Film and made many films throughout the 1960s that garnered recognition for South Korea at various film festivals. In 1978, Choi was abducted in Hong Kong and taken to North Korea by Kim Jong-il. Do you think he actually kidnapped him himself? No, he had some guys go out and kidnap them. The abduction of Shin followed six months later. After three years in prison, Shin was united with Choi, and the two were instructed by Kim Jong-il to make films for him in order to gain global recognition for North Korea's film industry. After finishing the film Pugasari, a Godzilla-like movie, the two were in talks with Kim about making another film when they took a trip to Vienna in 1986. Kim had requested Choi and Shin travel to the Austrian city to find someone who would finance a biographical film about Genghis Khan. On March 12, 1986, the couple checked into the Intercontinental of Vienna to meet journalist Akira Inuki under the pretense of an interview and convinced their North Korean bodyguards to leave the room. After telling a hotel employee to let the United States Embassy know they were both seeking asylum, Choi and Shin got into a taxi with Inoki 
at 12.30 post-Meridian and sped away. After being chased by their North Korean bodyguards in traffic congestion, the pair got out of the taxi and sprinted into the embassy. Outside of North Korean produced films by these two, uh, there's virtually no access to other media. The availability of foreign literature is limited as well, with examples being North Korean editions of Indian, German, Chinese, and Russian fairy tales, uh, some tales from Shakespeare, some works of Bertolt Brecht and Eric Kostner. I don't know who those people are, Dad. Do you? No, sorry. And, of course, for all of our Potterheads out there, the Harry Potter series is available in North Korea. Films are being smuggled in, and one of the most common that get uh, smuggled in is The Interview. Do you know that one, Dan? I've seen that one, yeah. Yeah, that one's hilarious. But I understand that occasionally uh, planes fly in from China and and literally airdrop uh, DVDs out of the plane. And yeah, between uh, The Interview and a couple other films, that's that's usually the ones that they mass produce and drop into North Korea. And I also read that sometimes in universities, of which there are over 300 in North Korea, they actually use the movie Titanic to show their students what Western culture is truly like. You know, the tragic film that takes place over 100 years ago on a boat? A vessel, Meg. We want to keep that nautical audience. Right, right, right. Hold on. A lot of that movie takes place on a lifeboat, Dad. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I guess from a 1912 perspective, it may seem like we operate in a class-structured society. Yet, North Korea has 51 social categories ranking people. You need to be at the top of the social rankings to have the privilege to live in Pyongyang. Speaking of ship-based accidents, not the smoothest segue, I'll, I'll admit, but in 1968, an American surveillance ship, the USF Pueblo, was engaged in surveillance off the north coast of North Korea. The U.S. deemed the ship to be about 16 nautical miles from the North Korean coast, which is well outside the 12 nautical miles of sovereignty. North Korea opened fire on the ship, and the ship took fire while destroying documents. The ship surrendered to North Korea after a number of the crew were wounded. The 83 soldiers were captured and eventually were forced to sign confessions. However, the crew used an unusual salute with their middle finger that the North Koreans didn't understand at first, having been told it was an Hawaiian symbol for good luck. On December 23, 1968, 82 soldiers were released, but the North Koreans kept the ship. I don't know if the U.S. government sends North Korea a bill every year for the ship, but they can probably get together with the Swedes in their attempt for payments of past due bills. (laughs) Okay, Dad, let's stop talking about all the things that they've stolen from other countries and get back to the positive here. Did you know that 80% of North Korea is composed of mountains and uplands that are separated by deep and narrow valleys? Indeed, all of the Korean peninsula's mountains that are over 2,000 meters are located in North Korea, the highest of which is Pike Two Mountain, which is a volcanic mountain with an elevation of over 2,700 meters. It is said to be stunningly beautiful. Uh, anyway, so 70% of the country is covered in forests, mostly on steep slopes of those mountains. And North Korea actually had a 2019 Forest Landscape Integrity Index uh, with a mean score of 8.02 out of 10, ranking it number 28 out of 172 countries. 
Excellent. Just so you know, though, Canada has a forest integrity index of 8.99 out of 10 and is number 11 in the world. Good. North Korea is also said to have bred a North Korean ostrich, which you can find on an ostrich farm just outside of the Pyongyang International Airport. These ostriches are sometimes required, however, to wear sweaters due to the cold weather in in, uh, in North Korea. And I also imagine them to be wearing fuzzy uh, leg warmers because, you know. They must be long leg yeah, warmers. Well, yeah, for sure. Basically leggings. And I also uh, find it a little bit strange when I looked up some more information about this ostrich farm. Uh, they also offer the additional option of having some barbecue ostrich meat. Yes, so go like hang out with the ostriches and then eat their friends. Seems a little strange. Like, I don't think North Korea sees a ton of tourists, though. So I don't know if that ostrich farm is getting visited so frequently. Uh, And the newest feature at this farm is that they have set up a special enclosure and platforms that you can feed, pat, and even ride ostrich either in a toad buggy or by sitting on its back. It is said that Kim Jong-il imported the gawky birds from Africa at a cost of about $10,000 each. And I can't help but wonder if they were bought directly from our next country, which also has an ostrich farm as one of their main tourist attractions. However, it should be noticed that the ostrich farm in Dakla, Western Sahara, does not allow you to ride them, and that at least these ostriches are in a more natural climate for their health. The Sawari... Arab Democratic Republic, S-A-D-R, also known as the Saharan Arab Democratic Republic, or Western Sahara, is a self-declared state that claims authority over the disputed territory of Western Sahara, which is concurrently claimed and occupied by Morocco. The Saharan Arab Democratic Republic was initially a Spanish colony from 1884 to 1976, And after the withdrawal of the Spanish, the nomadic inhabitants declared independence of the Republic and claimed ownership of the land. And in 1979, they signed a peaceful agreement with the Polisario Front, which was established as a Sahrawi rebel movement that is aiming to liberate Western Sahara from Moroccan control. As of 2016, the SADR was recognized by 85 members of the United Nations, of which 37 members later withdrew their recognition. The UN does not recognize it, but it is fully recognized by the African Union, and in 1982, Morocco withdrew its membership from the AU in protest, and that is the only African state that is not a member of the Union. In 2003, the UN ratified the Baker Plan, the plan created by James Baker, and presented to the then UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, established a five-year transitional plan that would see the SADR replaced by a Western Sahara Authority. The Western Sahara Authority would be a non-autonomous authority supervised by Morocco, and a referendum on independence would be held. Morocco rejected this plan. In 2007, Morocco proposed a self-governing entity that would govern the territory with a negotiated degree of autonomy. A stalemate ensued over the proposal, and the UN demanded that both parties seek an unconditional and mutually accepted solution to avert a potential territorial conflict. To date, the territory is still claimed by the SADR and Morocco. Hmm. Given that it is a disputed territory, 
It's hard to fully understand their COVID stats. On the site that I refer to, it says that within Western Sahara's population of 604,000, they've only had 10 confirmed positive cases of COVID. But alas, I guess it depends on the political affiliations of the doctor who conducted your test as to which entity your results will be affiliated with. Western Sahara is almost entirely covered by the Sahara Desert, which is the world's largest hot desert. Yep, that's right. The West, the Saharan Desert is not actually the world's largest desert, just the world's largest hot desert. There are indeed cold deserts, like the Antarctic and Arctic deserts, which are the largest in the world at over 5 million square miles each, while the Sahara is only 3.5 million square miles. During the summer months, temperatures in the Sahara average between a sizzling 38 to 46 degrees Celsius. The natural hazards in Sahara are hot and dry with a dust-laden Sirocco wind, which causes a widespread harmaten haze, which restricts visibility severely. A Sirocco, by the way, is a warm, humid wind occurring over the northern Mediterranean Sea and southern Europe, where it blows from the south or southeast, and brings uncomfortably humid air. The Sirocco is produced on the east sides of low-pressure centers that travel eastward over the southern Mediterranean. It originates over North Africa as a dry wind and picks up moisture as it crosses the Mediterranean. You know what, Meg? To me, the Sirocco was a Volkswagen that was sold in North America between 1975 and 1981. It was really sleek. The Gremlin in 1977 was about $4,000 and the Sirocco was about $6,000. I bought the Gremlin. I think Ford naming their 1940s car the Zephyr was a mistake. The Zephyr is a slight breeze, whereas the Sirocco is a powerful gale. Oh yeah, back to the podcast. Sorry, Meg. <laughs> Meg, did you know that you can go golfing in Western Sahara? I wonder if King Jun Il would sink 11 holes in one if the entire course was a sandpit. Mm-hmm. Well... Tourism numbers are climbing in Western Sahara, and between the kite surfing on the coast to the desert golfing and the ostrich farms, I'm sure they're bound to just keep rising once this pandemic is over. Tourism growth is very important for the area, as fishing is the base for almost two-thirds of Western Sahara's workforce, and most other things like water, gas, and food are heavily subsidized by the Moroccan government. What's interesting are all the resources that Western Sahara has access to. Not only has oil been identified off its shores, but Western Sahara has 70% of the world's reserves in phosphates. The Bukra mine in Western Sahara is the second largest producer of phosphate or phosphorus in the world. Despite the disputed illegality of the annexation of Western Sahara land and natural resources, the Moroccan phosphate industry is flourishing under the control of two industries owned and operated by the Moroccan state OCPSA and Phosphates du, du Bukra, a large conveyor belt, 97 kilometers long, transports nearly 2 million tons per year of phosphates from the deposits of Bukra. Canna has about 34% of the world's potash, which is a potassium-based fertilizer, mostly mined in Saskatchewan. Both potash and phosphate mining are used for agricultural applications. Both function similarly, but with different crops and can't be used interchangeably. You know, we have discussed the prevalence of phosphate in Nehru, Kiribati, and now in Western Sahara, but somehow we haven't touched on the number one producer of phosphate. 
I guess this might be because not only is our next country to the top producer of phosphate, but also the top producer of, oh my God, look at this list, Meg. Cotton, wool, paper, hydroelectricity, aluminum, coal, cement, iron, mercury, motor vehicles, ships, and steel. Number one in terms of, of rice, lettuce, onions, cabbage, eggplant, potatoes, spinach, carrots, pumpkin, pears, grapes, apples, tomatoes, watermelon, tea, beer, and pork. Seriously, even if they... If an object isn't directly made in China, it's likely that it's it's got Chinese parts. And considering that China has the largest population and the largest number of land borders, 14, by the way, it seems uh, questionable that in the country where COVID-19 originated, they've only actually reported 90,000 cases. And only 10,000 of those have been reported since March 1st, 2020. Also, only four deaths have been reported since last April. But hey, if China's doing that well, North Korea's claim could theoretically hold more weight, right? Am I being positive enough? Stupendous job, Meg. Stupendous. <laughs> you know, there are several important inventions or discoveries made by the ancient Chinese that have made important contributions to the world. Paper was invented in ancient China and later on, toilet paper. Although when it was first used, it was only for the emperor. So I guess they were safe from people hoarding it at the, at the grocery stores. <laughs> the four inventions most attributed to China are paper, gunpowder, printing, and the compass. Historically, at least 20 inventions can be claimed as being of Chinese origin, some of which are the umbrella, the abacus, which is a counting mechanism, fireworks, porcelain, papermaking, silk, noodles, the toothbrush, and the seismograph. Recent uncovered archaeological evidence seems to indicate <laughs> we have the Chinese to thank for alcohol too. 9,000-year-old pottery shards were found in the Henan province of China and show evidence of alcoholic contents. If true, that would push the development of almost 1,000 years before the inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula, who were thought to be the first brewers for many years. One of the most important inventions of all time was the development of print in China. The earliest example comes from a Tang tomb near Xi'an. Xi'an? Xi'an. You're asking me, Meg? <laughs> In China, this delicate manuscript consisted of a woodblock printing on a piece of hemp paper and dates to around 650 to 670 uh, AD. The movable type would also appear in China sometime around uh, 1088 AD. And Shen Kuo, a Chinese polymath, would describe the process in his Dream Pool essays in which he attributed the technique to a little-known artisan called Bai Shang. North Korea took over printing from there. The Jikji printing plates are the oldest evidence of movable metal type printing in the world. These plates were used to print books in Korea in 1377, preceding the Gutenberg Bible by 78 years. China is believed to have had the world's longest continuous civilization, with the dawn of Chinese civilization being 6000 B.C., Chinese is also the longest continuously used language in the world, and the system of writing that was adopted by the Chinese began around the 2nd century BC. Did you know that Mandarin Chinese is spoken by more people in the world than any other language? Even Gaelic, Meg? <laughs> 
Especially today. I, I think that's a reach, Meg. Well, Meg, one in every uh, five of the world's population is Chinese with an estimated 1.4 billion. So I can see how that's possible. Some other facts about the Chinese people. According to Chinese traditions, everyone's birthday falls on the day of the Chinese New Year. When babies are born, they are traditionally a year old a year old at the time of their birth. Hmm. Also, more than 35 million people still live in caves. Wow. Uh, that's, that's almost the entire population of Canada. I know. One person who became a hero in China, although he was not Chinese, is Henry Norman Bethune. Every Canadian and every Chinese person should know who Norman Bethune was. I do not know who he is. And I also asked all of my uh, gang of Mary cousins and they have no idea who he is. But go on. You know, Meg, we had a cottage uh, in your childhood up in the town of Gravenhurst. And we drove by Norman Bethune's house probably 150 times. He was born in Gravenhurst. Was this before or after the Orange Bridge? This was in town, Meg. This was this was, <laughs> <laughs> this was after the Orange Bridge. All right, all right. Norman Bethune was a surgeon, inventor, and political activist. He was born on March the 3rd in 1890 in, as I said, Gravenhurst. And he died in November of 1939 in China. Bethune's fame in Canada has resulted from his status as a hero in the People's Republic of China and the impact on Sino-Canadian relations. Following a stint in the Royal Navy, initial training in Toronto, and I believe he went to the University of Toronto, and postgraduate training in Britain in 1926, he contracted pulmonary tuberculosis. After this personal crisis, he devoted himself to other tuberculosis victims and to thoracic surgery. Between 1929 and 1936, he invented or redesigned 12 medical and surgical instruments and wrote 14 articles describing his innovations in thoracic techniques. He became increasingly disillusioned with surgical treatment and concerned with the socioeconomic aspects of disease. He challenged his profession and proposed radical reforms of medical care and health services in Canada. After a visit to the Soviet Union in 1935, Bethune joined the Communist Party. This commitment took him to the Spanish Civil War in 1936, where he organized a mobile blood transfusion service, the first of its kind, to operate on a thousand-kilometer front. He returned to Canada in 1937 to raise money for the anti-fascist cause in Spain and soon turned his attention to the war being waged by communist forces against the Japanese invaders in China. Bethune left Canada for the first time in 1938 to join the 8th Route Army, in the Shangzi Hobai border region. There, he was a tireless and inventive surgeon, teacher, and propagandist, and he adopted the cause and the people as his own. His accidental death from septicemia, or sepsis, evoked Mao Zedong's essay in memory of Norman Bethune. One of three prescribed articles during the Cultural Revolution, the essay made Bethune's name almost synonymous with Canada in China. And I'm just going to take a couple of excerpts from uh, Mao Zedong's uh, essay about um, Norman Bethune. Comrade Bethune's spirit, his utter devotion to others without any thought of self, was shown in his great sense of responsibility in his work and his great warm-heartedness towards all comrades and people. Every communist must learn from him. No one who returned from the front failed to express admiration for Bethune whenever his name was mentioned, and none remained unmoved by his spirit. 
No soldier or civilian was unmoved who had been treated by Dr. Bethune or had seen how he worked. Well, Dr. Bethune went from the second largest country in terms of area to the largest country in terms of population. Uh, But China does come in number four uh, in relation to area. And surprisingly, they only actually have one time zone. So in some areas to the west of the country, 3,000 kilometers from Beijing, the sun comes up after 9 a.m. China has the largest military, by the way, in terms of numbers of people. Take that, North Korea. And their military is apparently also training 10,000 pigeons as part of a reserve pigeon army to serve as a backup communication system. One other thing I want to talk about concerning communication systems and the ways that China has influenced the rest of the world is in terms of the historical Silk Road. The Silk Road was named as such due to the lucrative trade in silk and consisted of a network of trade routes connecting the east to the west that was used between about 100 BCE to the 1450s. By the way, China, as you mentioned, Dad, is also number one in silk production, and it was a very early Chinese invention from over 6,000 years ago. Silk cocoons have been found cut in half that date between 4,000 and 3,000 BC, Yet other finds from ancient tombs show silk production may have even stretched back as far as 8,500 BC. Whenever it was developed, the Chinese would master the technique very early on and kept the secret of weaving silk closely guarded for many centuries. Not only was the Silk Road used for its namesake, but also for other Chinese inventions. For example, Marco Polo took the recipe for both ice cream and noodles along the Silk Road. Along the way, he may have passed through uh, both of our next two COVID-free claimants, but let's start with Turkmenistan. Actually, Turkmenistan had one of the most important major cities along the Silk Road, Merv, which is located near today's city of Mary. Human settlements existed in Merv beginning at 3000 BCE through the 18th century AD. At its peak, it became one of the largest cities in the world with a population of a half a million in the 13th century. Well, Turkmenistan has a population of about 6 million today, and apparently it hasn't suffered any sort of peak in terms of COVID cases because it reports zero, ever. Indeed, not only is COVID information unavailable both inside and outside the country, but no public health information has been made available to the Turkmen. And I really want to say Turk women here, but I know it's just the Turkmen people, but I really want to say the Turkmen and Turk women. Uh, Anyway, no public health information has been made available to the people in the country of Turkmenistan since the collapse of the USSR and the establishment of the country in 1991. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that they have been touched by the pandemic, though, including a Turkish ambassador, Turkish as in from Turkey, try to keep up, Dan. Trying to. Who was treated for pneumonia and given antibiotics, which would not have helped uh, had a COVID test been administered. The WHO did go for a visit in July and could only say that they didn't see enough evidence of a serious outbreak. They did, however, report concern over an increase of acute respiratory illness or pneumonia of unknown cause. Citizens in Turkmenistan are encouraged to wear face masks due to reported increase of dust in the air, and the flu shots were mandatory in 2020. 
the last COVID clue we have to, from Turkmenistan comes from the UK's ambassador, whose name is Hugh Philpot. And uh, he tweeted that he was sick with, and I quote, a virus that is trending in the popular world. And he also tweeted that he was recovering from COVID. By the way, anyone listening to this should really look into this guy's YouTube channel. Like I said, his name is Hugh Philpot, and you can find his channel through that name. And he has taken on a challenge of singing very uh, authentic Turkmen songs, the Turkmen Step, in front of one heck of a green screen depicting various landscapes of Turkmenistan's countryside. Well, speaking of strange men representing countries, I think it's all about time we got into the man behind the COVID-free claims. The president of Turkmenistan, whose name is Gurban Guli, Berdi Muhammadow. Listen, I think if we're going to talk about him for a while, we're going to need a nickname. I'm thinking about Guberti. What do you think? Yeah, that works for me, Meg. Guberti is much easier than than the name he has. <laughs> So, Gerberti, actually we should call him Dr. Gerberti, as he used to be a dentist, came on TV on December 25th to suggest that licorice is a cure for COVID. What do you want to bet that uh, Twizzlers was over the moon about that endorsement? (laughs) Dr. Gerberti also banned the use of the word coronavirus last March, but also closed the bazaars and and, uh, and movement between regions has been very limited since. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that that you had to have a negative COVID test in order to use the railway. Uh, once it reopened, but there are no tests available. So you can't have a negative COVID result if you can't get a COVID test. So I guess you just can't. Turk Medicine hasn't uh, had any international flights since last March. And this is also a country who claims to be free of HIV, but also has a proven history of hiding several outbreaks in the past 20 years, including one of the plague. Ugh. What's interesting about Dr. Gerberti is that he is the second leader of the country, and apparently the dictator before him was much worse and had a very similar theme of a cult of personality like that of North Korean leaders. The former leader, Saparmurat Niazov, actually had banned spandex and opera for being insufficiently Turkmen. And after having to quit smoking in 1997 due to his resultant heart surgery, he banned smoking in all public areas so he would have an easier time quitting without looking at other people smoking. He banned lip syncing at concerts, dogs from the Capitol because of the unappealing odor, he said. And he decreed in 2004 that men should no longer wear long hair or beards. The weirdest one, though, this guy abolished the word for bread and replaced it with his mother's name, Gurban Sultan. Oh, he also renamed the month of April with his mom's name too. So just imagine you're making like a monthly grocery list for his mom in the month of April. And you just put, you need Gurban Sultan for Gurban Sultan in Gurban Sultan. <laughs> That's it, That's it. You got it. Well, I wonder if, if their largest export, natural gas, is naturally Turkmen enough for them, as it is something else they share with China. And I, do, I really do mean they share, as China bought over 30 billion cubic meters of Turkmenistan's natural gas in 2019, which was delivered by a pipeline. Just to show how much natural gas is in Turkmenistan, Darvaza, known as the door to hell, is a fire pit that has been burning for over 40 wow. years. Following a drilling accident in 1971, the gas crater opened up and began venting gas, killing local wildlife. Scientists believed that lighting the gas would cause it to burn out in a few weeks, 
but it continues to burn to this day, some 50 years and counting. Oh my gosh. It's not the only such phenomenon though, Meg. There's also a similar pit called Baba Gugar in Iraq, and there's Burning Mountain or Mount Wingham in Australia, which is a coal fire burning about 100 feet underground and has been estimated to be burning for 6,000 years. Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, Turkmenistan may be the fifth largest producer of natural gas, but they are number one in many other areas. Indeed, the capital city of Ashgabat itself currently holds four Guinness World Records. Number one, the largest indoor Ferris wheel that is in an architectural structure. I don't even know how many of those there are. That seems like a pretty specialized Guinness World Record. Number two, the largest architectural constructed star in the world. Number three, the highest number of fountains in a public place. And number four, the highest density of marble buildings in the world. Interestingly enough, though, they are not the only country in our episode today with impressive Guinness World Records, as North Korea has the record for the biggest choreographic event in the world with the Arirang Festival, where some 100,000 athletes perform rhythmic gymnastics and dances, while another 40,000 participants create a vast animated screen in the background, creating an artistic representation of the country's history and leaders. To their credit, Turkmenistan holds the status of permanent neutrality, unlike North Korea, which reflects the country's strong commitment to international peace and security. It celebrates its status of neutrality every day on the national holiday called Day of Neutrality, uh, and they've done so since 1995. Dad, can you explain a little bit about what permanent neutrality is all about? Sure, Meg. A permanently neutral power is a sovereign state that is bound by international treaty or by its own declaration to be a neutral towards the belligerence of all future wars. An example of a permanently neutral power is Switzerland. Uzbekistan, which is Turkmenistan's northern neighbor, is also a new neutral country. The first country to declare neutrality status was Sweden in 1814, as, and was interrupted only during the Finnish Civil War in 1918, which we talked about last week. Mm. Canada has never been a neutral country. Interesting. Well, thank you. By the way, if the Day of Neutrality doesn't seem like a fun holiday, maybe Melon Day sounds better. It takes place on the second Sunday in August and is devoted to celebrating Turkmenistan's musk melon, in particular, a recent crossbreed, which has actually been named the Turkmenbashi melon after their first president. Or maybe carpet day is more up your alley. Turkmenistan is famous for its traditional carpets, and Turkmen carpets are known for their dense texture ornamented with characteristic colored patterns pertaining to one of the five main Turkmen tribes. Maybe you can combine all three and head out with a Turkmen bashi melon and a Turkmen carpet for a nice neutral picnic. Well, you have to be selective about where you hold your picnic as the country is 70% covered by the Karakum Desert. You won't be able to reserve any ocean view spot either as Turkmenistan is, is landlocked, but maybe you can catch a nice breeze on the Caspian Sea. 
Well, speaking of landlocked countries in Central Asia, let's head back towards China a little bit on that old Silk Road and talk about a country that seems to have gotten rid of COVID as if it were an island, Tajikistan. Tajikistan's COVID story is a bit different than those we have already discussed. They certainly have admitted that COVID hit their country of 9.5 million in population by reporting over 13,000 cases between the end of April or should I say the end of Gurban Sultan in Turkmenistan, and the beginning of January 2021, but then bam, over. No more cases. No second wave. They've only ever reported 90 deaths as well, which seems very low. But seriously, as of January 2021, all of a sudden, COVID just fell off the Tajik radar. Meg, do you want to hear another commonality between some of our countries today? Sure. Flagpoles. Do you mean flags, Dad? Because I think we could save that for another season of Countries in Common. No, Meg. I mean flagpoles. (laughs) Three of our no-COVID countries are in the top five of the world's tallest flagpoles, and Tajikistan has the tallest of the three. Wow. The highest flagpole in the world is in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia at 560 feet, Dashanabi, Tajikistan at 541 feet, Baku in Azerbaijan at 531 feet, Kijongdong in North Korea at 525 feet and Ashgabat in Turkmenistan at 436 feet. Okay. Also, for your information, Turkmenistan may confuse bread with April, but try figuring out what day of the week your train ticket to Tajikistan's capital, Dashanabi. The city is named after the first day of the week, Monday. Apparently, this is because the city was originally located at the crossroads where a large market occurred on Mondays. I'm actually kind of surprised they haven't tried to rebuild a new flagpole to take that title back from Saudi Arabia. The Nurek Dam in Tajikistan was the tallest in the world at 304 meters until the Chinese government built the Jinping-E Dam, which is 305 meters tall. It was also included in the Guinness Book of World Records. And please note that it's one, it was one meter higher than Tajikistan's former Nurek Dam. Oh. Then in 2016, Tajikistan started building what is expected to become the world's tallest dam once again. The planned 335 meter tall Rogan Dam will be higher than that 305 meter hydropower station in China and construction is expected to be completed in 2028. One of Tajikistan's most striking beauty spots is the lake of Iskenderkul. I think that sounds great. Iskenderkul. Iskenderkul, yeah. I'm amazed by that one. A mountain lake four kilometers long located about 2,200 meters high. The lake takes its name from Alexander the Great and is believed to be where his horse, Basophilus, drowned in a battle. The water appears to change color during the day from a nice turquoise to a milky white. You know, before Secretariat, Basophilus was the most famous horse of all time. I'd say the average 20 or 21st century man would likely know a lot of other horses as being more famous. You know, like, for instance, have you heard of Silver Meg, the Lone Ranger's horse, or maybe Roy Rogers' Trigger, or maybe Man of War, or Eclipse? I feel like I only know some of those because I know Man of War at some point was like our Wi-Fi password. Meg? (laughs) Eclipse won all 18 of his races in the late 18th century, and almost all thoroughbreds are direct descendants of Eclipse. 
Anyway, back to Alexander and Basophilus. Basophilus was actually offered to Alex's cool daddy, Philip of Macedon, for about three times the average price of a horse. The horse was unmanageable, and Philip was going to pass on the horse when Alexander was able to ride the horse. Realizing the horse was afraid of its own shadow, and by pointing the horse towards the sun, Basophilus couldn't see its shadow under Alexander, and he was able to ride the horse. One other thing while we're on the subject of horses, Meg. The winter sport of Buskashi is also played in Tajikistan. Played on horseback, the game originated in Persia and is similar to polo. The aim is to scoop up a dead carcass, usually a goat, and land it in the goal. It kind of puts a dent in the image that my mind was starting to conjure about horses and lakes and mountains and all the other striking beauty before you added in scooping up a carcass. Also, that sport sounds pretty difficult, especially at a high altitude, wherein most of the country finds itself. At over 7,000 meters high, the Pamir Mountains are known as the roof of the world. They are also home to the world's second highest second highest highway second highest highway jeez louise we do not make these 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 facts very easy to pronounce hey second highest highway the pamir highway also known as the m41 the pamir highway is renowned for its spectacular scenery and remote route as well as access to the fedchenko glacier in the pamir mountains which is, at 77 kilometers, the longest glacier outside of the polar regions. By the way, the Pamir Highway connects to the number one highest highway, the Karakoram Highway, which, in 1986, officially opened to travelers and connected China with several Central Asian countries. Overall, at 3,200 meters, Tajikistan has the world's third highest average elevation just behind Bhutan and Nepal. At 7,500 meters tall, Ismoil Somoni Peak is the tallest mountain in Tajikistan. That may not be so close to the world's tallest mountain, but it's got a good 1,500 meters on Africa's tallest, Mount Kilimanjaro, which is also the tallest freestanding mountain in the world found in none other than Tanzania. Mount Kilimanjaro is a dormant volcano in Tanzania. It has three volcanic cones, Kibo, Mwenzi, and Shira. Almost every type of ecological system can be found on Mount Kilimanjaro. This includes cultivated land, rainforest, heath, moorland, alpine desert, and an Arctic summit. Kilimanjaro is the fourth most topographical prominent peak on Earth, The prominence of a peak is the minimum height of a climb to the summit on any route from a higher peak or from sea level if there's no higher peak. It is part of Kilimanjaro National Park and is a major climbing destination. The mountain is relatively easy to climb as compared to other continental peaks. The journey is about 70 kilometers in length and though you don't require a great deal of skill or training, you are susceptible to altitude sickness. Now it's time for the lowest point. The floor of Lake Tanganyika, Africa's deepest, stretches all the way down to 1,150 feet below sea level. Tanzania's story with COVID bears a real resemblance to that of Tajikistan in in terms of suddenly having nothing to report. With a population of 60 million, they have reported only 509 cases and 21 deaths. Zero cases have been reported since April. Indeed, the Ministry of Health announced 
back in April that the government had suspended reporting COVID-19 figures because of the work currently taking place in the national health laboratories. But the country has been reported as having one of the most lax lockdowns as well. Schools are open, public events, workplaces and public transport are open, and there's no restriction of movement. However, during the week of February 24th, 2021, the president admitted that the country has a problem with COVID. It turns out his claims on COVID being defeated by simply by using prayer were not accurate. This already seemed pretty obvious to neighboring countries wherein arrivals from Tanzania have been testing positive for some time. I should also mention that their president has been very suspicious of foreign-made goods, including vaccines, and has actually rejected vaccines from the COVAX Global uh, Initiative. Problem is, Tanzania doesn't have a lot of vaccine research or manufacturing facilities. But alas, they have so many other wonderful things, so let's focus on those. In the northern part is where you'll find the Serengeti's most famous human residence, the Maasai. Around 800,000 live in Tanzania while the rest of the populace is scattered over the border in Kenya. Living in circular huts built with mud and grass, the Maasai, hunters by trade, are famous for their brightly colored clothing, shuka, dyed red hair, beads, and jumping really, really high. I think it's the Maasai. Okay, Meg, Maasai. <laughs> the Serengeti is home to the, the only volcano on the planet that is currently erupting carbonatite lava. This mineral-rich carbonate lava is washed down the plains where it fertilized the land. Ranging from grasslands and mountains to volcanoes and plains, there's a lot of stunning nature that needs protecting. The most famous areas are the Serengeti and the Ngorongoro conservation area. But there's also Rua, the Silas, Gombe Stream National Park, and many more. It all adds up to around 38% of Tanzania being protected. The Ngorongoro crater holds the record as the biggest extinct caldera in the world. It is a massive 12 miles in diameter, over 100 miles squared, and basically makes up most of the eponymous Ngorongoro National Park. Today, the crater is lush, grassy, inhabited by rhinos, leopards, zebras, warthogs, and a host of other who's who's in the savanna landscape. The wildebeest migration in the Serengeti is quite literally awesome. This incredible spectacle is an annual event and basically accounts for one of the world's most massive migrations of animals. Millions of wildebeest, as well as, well as gazelle and zebra, make their way on a circular route following the rainfall. When this happens, it makes for the largest population of big mammals on Earth. Well, from Earth to sea, it seems Tanzania has it all. Firstly, there are islands off of uh, Tanzania's Indian Ocean coast, where you will find the Zanzibar Archipelago. There's also the historic Mafia Island. But away from the sea, Tanzania boasts some pretty cool islands as well, namely Ukerewe. This is the largest lake-based island, not only in Lake Victoria, but also in the whole of Africa. The world's oldest known human skull was found in nearby Olduvai Gorge, too. Fun fact about Tanzania, it may be the only country with a compound name. The Tan comes from Tanganyika, which means something like sail in the wilderness in Swahili. And the Zan comes from Zanzibar, from the Arabic meaning black coast. So there you go. A little known fact about Tanzania is that it was invaded and conquered in the late 19th century. It made up part of German East Africa. 
Zanzibar wasn't part of the equation, though, since it was overseen by an Arab dynasty of rulers from Oman. It ceased to be a British colony in 1961, and then not long afterward, 1963, Zanzibar stopped being a protectorate of the British, too. The two countries merged, naturally. Freddie Mercury from the rock band Queen was born in Zanzibar, Tanzania. He was born Farouk Bolsara in Zanzibar to Parsi Indian parents. Fleeing the Zanzibar revolution in 1964, teenage Freddie and his parents found themselves in Middlesex. And the rest, you know, is history. Baobabs are a beautiful and fascinating tree that can be seen in Tanzania's Tarangire National Park. Some species of the baobab can live a thousand years or longer, although the oldest one found in South Africa is believed to be an astounding 6,000 years old. The Mpingo tree produces the world's most expensive timber. It has exceptional mechanical properties that make it perfect for carving, and it has a beautiful finish. Another country that has a very interesting tree, which is called the Tree of Dragon's Bud, or Dracaina cinnabare, which is a strange-looking umbrella-shaped tree that has red sap that was thought to be the dragon's blood of the ancients, is found in our next country, Yemen. Yemen, unfortunately, is one of the countries I was referring to at the beginning of the episode in terms of having bigger fish to fry than the global pandemic. With a population of almost 28.5 million, they've only reported just under 3,000 cases of COVID and only 707 deaths. But they have also been experiencing a bit of a second wave of lates, which may influence these numbers if you're listening at a later date. Yemen is experiencing a famine that is a result of the Yemeni civil war that has been an ongoing conflict since 2014. But so much of their history from long before their current conflicts will be highlighted here today. For more than 2,000 years, from around 1200 BC, Yemen was home to a series of powerful and wealthy city-states and empires. Their prosperity was largely due to the production of frankincense and myrrh, two of the most valued products of the ancient world. Frankincense and myrrh are tree saps that harden into resins and are used for incense and other fragrances. Yemen was the first country to get in the Arabian Peninsula to grant women the right to vote in 1967. Uh, they are also the only state in the Arabian Peninsula to have a purely Republican form of government. Uh, the Socotra Archipelago is also considered to be a jewel of biodiversity in the Arabian Sea. In the 1990s, a team of United Nations biologists conducted a survey of the archipelago's flora and fauna. They counted nearly 700 endemic species found nowhere else on Earth. Only New Zealand, Hawaii, New Caledonia, and the Galapagos Islands have more impressive numbers. One of the more fun facts about Yemen is that it is where Mocha coffee gets its name. The port city of Mocha was once a vast coffee marketplace and is considered the birthplace of coffee trade. Yemenis are famous for chewing a mild amphetamine-like drug called cat, a regional practice that dates back thousands of years. It's estimated that up to 90% of adult men chew cat several times a day and fi possibly 50% of adult women. Did you know that Yemen lays claim to the Queen of Sheba, the legendary ancient ruler of the Kingdom of Saba, which is supposedly located in present-day Yemen? The Queen of Sheba is the monarch mentioned in the Bible and then in later works, who travels to Jerusalem to experience the wisdom of King Solomon, 
This should not be surprising since Saba was a growing power in 950 BCE and the wealthiest kingdom in southern Arabia. It's interesting to research the real story of the origins of the Queen of Sheba as the name is not always bandied about in a positive tone. Your grandfather, my father, used the Queen of Sheba quite frequently in, in reference to a certain British lady who happened to be their prime minister during her dealings with the Troubles of Northern Ireland. My dad seemed to disagree frequently with the news broadcasted during that period of history and often referred to the prime minister in the form of a question. Who the, let's put an expletive in there, Meg, does she think she is? The Queen of Sheba? <laughs> Architectural and history buffs alike will also like the old walled city in Shibam in Yemen. As a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the city is home to more than 500 towers that are made entirely out of mud brick. Jabal and Nabi Shuab at 3,600 meters above sea level is the highest mountain in Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula. This is something that they have in common with a lot of the countries today. A lot of them are covered in mountains. A lot of them, you know, seem to have a lot of high peaks. So maybe they can say that the mountains are what blocked COVID from coming in, though apparently that didn't work really work so well for Bhutan or Nepal. Yemen is the world's second hungriest country and suffers from an alarming level of hunger, according to the 2020 report from the Global Hunger Index. This is a shaming statistic of mankind in a world where there's enough food produced to feed the entire planet. Yep, and I'm going to post a link in our show notes to uh, to to show how you can help in Yemen if you'd like. Um, I've actually I got a, a pretty good website. It's a it's a list of rated charities from a website called CharityNavigator.org, so you can find one that lines up best with your values. Whether their numbers are accurate in terms of COVID deaths or COVID cases or not doesn't seem to matter so much if people are, are dying at such great rates from malnutrition. Thank you, Meg. That, that was, uh, it's great to have those things posted on the, um, on the show notes. Well, that's another episode under our belt, and I know we had a difficult time today with pronunciations, and we're a little late recording this, so we, you know, so honestly, I feel badly for you, because, you know, I'm not doing, I'm actually doing exactly 0% of the editing. Um, And you know what? I'm also really sad, because in all this discussion about countries who are corrupt and and countries who don't have uh, great freedom of, of press and don't have very great um, freedom of speech. We've had no chance to bring up Jacinda Ardern. Well, you just managed it now. I man. know. Mission accomplished. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. As always, you guys are very welcome to rate, uh, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Or follow us on Spotify. Dad loves reading the reviews on Apple Podcasts. So Continue giving us those that that feedback because we really appreciate it and it helps motivate us to get a little get this done a little earlier and and make sure that we've got all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted so that we don't have to record on a Tuesday night when we try to post on Wednesdays. So thanks so much. Dad, you want to tell them about our next episode of Countries in Common? 
Yeah, our next episode is a strange episode because we are actually talking about countries that are within five degrees of the 60th meridian. And for some reason, along this line, countries have very low COVID numbers. It's it's a phenomenon. So thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on Countries in Common. Black Bouton. Stop!